Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates for conversations around how their internal work in the process is informing their life outside the process, how their spirit and how their love is living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. My name is Drew Horning, and today we have Raz Ingrassi. Raz, it is so great to have you. Uh, Raz is the founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. He's also chairman of Hoffman International. Raz has been a teacher for years of the Hoffman process, and he's the principal heir to Bob Hoffman's work having worked with him nine years before he died. Raz, so great to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you, Drew. It's wonderful to be here with you. So, Raz, as you think about your own journey in this transformation work, what are some of the early uh, turning points for you, some of the early awakenings on your path? Well, um, my earliest awakening, I'll go back to when I was uh, 20, 22 years old. And I was at, well, I was at Cal Berkeley for the, from 1966 to 1970. And that was a time of tremendous social transformation and unrest in, in America, very much like today. You know, young people were leading this, what I'll call a great spiritual awakening in America. I was studying theater because I was convinced that theater held the key to human transformation, to personal and social transformation for a number of reasons. I started studying psychology because I wanted to know why human beings behave the way they do, but then I moved over to, to theater. And uh, after graduating, I met Swami Muktananda, who was on a two-week little mini-tour of the United States being introduced by Ram Dass. And I went on a three- or four-day retreat with him in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And how would you describe him? Well, he was, he was, a very, he was charismatic and, uh, and a very you know, fascinating Indian, in the Indian guru model. But what was interesting and fascinating and amazing to me is that he did an initiation ceremony and I participated in it, and it was, you know, mind-blowing. It transported me into realms uh, that I never imagined existed. And I stayed there for quite a while, and, uh, you know, quite a while, meaning an hour, couple of hours. So I understood. I had a, spirit, a powerful spiritual experience. And uh, then I went on from there, and I became involved with Warner Earhart at Est, actually before he started Est. Stayed with him a number of years. He had a powerful training program, and I saw the S training more as a theatrical experience, transformational theatrical experience. And then uh, I did a number of things, consulting in the field. During that time, in 1974 and five, I met Bob Hoffman and got to know him quite a bit for over a couple of years. And then we lost touch with each other. And in 1988, I met him again. And... Uh, 
this time I said, Bob, what was that theory you had? And he said, the negative love syndrome. I said, yeah, what was that? So he explained it to me in three or four minutes. And it, it really hit me like a ton of bricks that he had figured something very fundamental out. He had an insight. And so then I asked him, is your program as good as your theory? He said, it's better. So then a few months later, a few months later in 1989, I, um, I, I did the Hoffman process and it was life-changing, absolutely life-changing. And will you uh, describe your understanding of the negative love syndrome? Yeah, I mean, the, the negative love syndrome is, simply speaking, the ways that we, in our desperation to survive as little infants and children, we must identify with and feel bonded with our caregivers, especially our mothers, and we bond with them in whatever emotions are available. Now, we don't have any judgment. So if, as, to the extent that our parents are loving and sweet and kind and supportive, that's we inherit a treasure trove. To the extent that our parents are troubled, upset, um, lost, drug addicted, angry, have negative patterns, we inherit those. And we bond with them in that. And you know, what we're really doing at that point in identifying with them, we are creating our own identity. The human identity is composed of what we have identified with. And the identifications are emotional, those early identifications. And so we are enacting our own sense of self. We are taking it on and creating it. Then we live, live it out. In our Western culture, we all think that, you know, we're, we're raised to believe that the intellect is so powerful, but it's not. The emotions, Bob Hoffman used to say, the intellect is a speck floating on the ocean of emotion. You know, we've all had experience of having some emotional uh, embarrassment, humiliation. Maybe we're at a, a dinner party or something, or someone says something. And for days, and it happens in just a flash, but for days afterward, we can be ruminating over it in our intellect. What did she mean by that? Why didn't I say this? What if I said that? He neither, he deserves this. We, we ruminate and ruminate and ruminate. That's the intellect trying to catch up to the emotional experience. And so, you know, we now know through brain science that the, the emotional part of the brain is probably four or 500 times faster than the intellect. And the intellect is probably receive something like 90% of its in inputs from the emotional brain. So the emotions are primary and we don't recognize that in our culture and you cannot change emotional content through, through the intellect, through mantras and all that other stuff and repetitions and chants and you can't change it. And when Bob Hoffman said that the process was actually even better than the concept and the construct of the negative love syndrome. Did you believe him after your own experience at the process? Oh, yes. At the process itself. I mean, I was fascinated when he said that because he was telling me that I was going to enter. Essentially, what I, what I understood him to say is, you're entering into a mystery. When you take the Hoffman process, you'll be entering into the mystery. And for the longest time, I have not been seeking the answer to life as much as I have recognizing that we're 
we're navigating a mystery. So when I did the process, the quadrinity model that it is based on is holistic. So there's the, I mentioned the intellect and the emotions, and of course, the human body and the spirit. And so that for the most part, we have not been raised to integrate spirit into our, you know, if you said to me, if I said to you, Drew, do you have a body? Yes. Do you have an intellect? Yes. Do you have emotions? Yes. But you ask someone, well, how about your spiritual self? Well, I, I think I probably do. You know, people don't have that access and they're not in contact with it. So the Hoffman process allows us to deal with our unexperienced losses and grief, which block us from our contact with the spirit, with our spiritual self, spiritual dimension. And then it also opens up the spiritual dimension. So it works on two sweeps, if you will, by uh, reducing our <clears throat> attachment to our negativity and by increasing our access to our spirituality. And that taken together is very, very powerful. And I experienced uh, these amazing, I had amazing experiences in the Hoffman process that were, that were very powerful, that were spiritual experiences. As you look back on them now, what do you, what do you remember about what happened for you? One of the motivations I had, one of the things I wanted to change going in there was Liza and I, we've now been married for about 42 years, but at that time we'd been married about 10 years. We had two little kids and our son was four and I could see myself parenting him in the ways that my dad parented me. So I heard things coming out of my mouth. The last time I heard those things, I was like five or seven and I hated it then. And now here I was saying it again. So I knew that I was destined to parent our kids the way I was parented, number one. Number two is that all marriages, especially when you have a couple little kids, uh, it, life becomes very stressful. It totally changes the, mar the marital dynamic. So I was wondering, is, this, is our marriage going to last? And so in the Hoffman process, after I had walked in my own shoes again uh, as a child and had understood what happened to me in childhood, but I mean emotionally and spiritually understood what happened. I knew I was going to be a great father and I knew that my marriage was going to last. And I came out of the process knowing that those two biggest issues for me were resolved. And, and I did. Our marriages lasted. Our, our kids were are fantastic human beings. They've both done the process when they became about 24, 25. And um, in fact, our daughter has become a Hoffman teacher. She's now 37 years old. And Marissa is a colleague of mine and I love her. And um, what a liberating feeling to come out knowing in your body that you are a good parent, your marriage will work out, you are a good husband. That's a powerful experience. Oh yeah, the it was that was that was life changing, and as well, I by then knew that I wanted that Bob wanted me to work with him, and I knew I wanted to work with him, and I came away from there knowing that I had found something worth dedicating my life to, and indeed, have spent the next more than thirty years um, doing this. Russ, what was Bob like? I think people often wonder what kind of guy can download this kind of powerful transformative experience. What was he like? 
Well, by dint of his development, his background, his birth, his education, he did not go to college, although he was terribly smart. He came from an impoverished uh, family of immigrants, Russian immigrants. He was Jewish. He was gay, although he was in the closet until he was uh, probably 50. But what he had was he had a gift for intuition and doing psychic readings. Bob had a tremendous sense of humor. He liked to, to uh, make jokes. And, you know, he was in time, he, he became a cultured person. He had a beautiful home and, and so forth. But he had this, this gift and he, and he did some special training in, in his ability to read people psychically. And then in 1967, in the middle of the night, he, well, he had a friend, a man named Siegfried Fischer, and who was a psychiatrist, and Bob spent a lot of time with him. And then he said that, and Fisher died, and about six months later, in the middle of the night, as Bob describes it, he was awakened, and he felt the presence of Fisher there, and Fisher started talking to him, and Bob started writing things down, and he said Fisher gave him the negative love syndrome, the quadrinity model, and described what happened, and he helped Bob go through his own personal process. So after that, Bob combined the understandings that he got from this I mean, who knows who visited him, but he says it was the soul of Siegfried Fischer. He combined those those insights that he received with his psychic ability to start helping people. Uh, Bob was friends with a number of Bay Area psychiatrists who were, you know, the medical director of Esalen and other people like that, about half a dozen of them, including Claudio Naranjo, the Chilean psychiatrist, who he's the man who brought the Enneagram to the United States. And he was a young man then, about 35, and he was a friend of Bob's. Bob then said to these psychiatrists, you know, psychiatrists, by the way, seemed to all, all of them, you know, they were doing talk therapy back then in the, in the, by around 1970, and not prescribing medicine so much as doing talk therapy. And so they all had a backlog of people that, you know, patients that they really hadn't been able to help that much. And Bob said to them, send them to me have them bring a cassette tape and also an object from their childhood. And they would come to Bob and he would put the, the cassette into the tape recorder and he would hold the object that they brought in his hand. Then he would tell them what happened in their childhood to make things be the way they are for them in their adult lives. And he did a, he did a psychic reading. Then the people would take the tape recordings back to their psychiatrists, and the therapy would proceed on whatever Bob said, and these people all started getting better. So that got their interest and support. And then in 1972, and so Bob did this personal stuff for about five years until 1972 when Claudio Naranjo said, Bob, I think we can begin to turn this into a, a program that people can, you know, you can have a class. And so that was the beginning of the Hoffman process uh, in 19. 1972 with Claudio. And initially it was a kind of weekly thing before it turned into a residential. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So from 1972 to 1985, people would come for four hours on a Tuesday and four hours on a Thursday night. And then they would go home in between and they would get work to do in between. And they would send that to their, it was all done by regular snail, what we call snail mail today. 
And uh, that would go on for 13 weeks. So you literally had to live in San Francisco for, what is that, three months, three and a half months. And it was very powerful, but then very, it was extremely limited. And so in 19, in, in the sense of how many people that could reach in 85, they turned it into an eight-day residential program. And then it started growing. And by 87, Bob was teaching, you know, people were coming from Europe. Then Bob went to Europe and taught people how to teach it. So that, that was how it grew. At this point, of course, it's a six and a half day program. Yeah, residential program. So I, I can't remember the thread of your question, but. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> yeah, it was. So then it moved to an eight day program before maybe six years ago, it, it moved to a seven day program. Yeah, and at the end of 2013, we moved it to six and a half, seven days, right. Starts on a Saturday morning, ends the next Friday after lunch. So um, at, at this point, I, I want to share to listeners that, Raz, you were my teacher when I was a student in the process. And of course, all teachers have taken the process at least once. But, you know, there were a couple moments in my process where I remember so profoundly. And um, one of them was our, our regular morning check-ins when you <clears throat> brought such kindness, your smile, your warmth. And even though it was only a few moments, there was that genuine connection of love and appreciation and gratitude and warmth that you brought to our encounters. And then the second one was what I now know was a Wednesday. It was prior to an expressive experience. And you paused in our morning check-in and, and looked at me straight in the eye and said, you can do this. You can do this. And there was uh, something in that way in which you said it to me that helped me step deeper into the experience. And I took your words to heart. And I think it actually was the most profound experience of the week for me because I gave so much of myself in that particular expressive experience. I'm, I'm so grateful for that time. Do you, do you, what's it like for you to have been a teacher all these years? It's a profound experience. And you know, I've been involved in this process and in, in this work in two ways. One is, you could say from the business side, the strategy and how do we help, how do we have it grow and how do we involve other people? How do we gain support from people? And the other part of it is teaching. And so when I go in to teach, I, I have to, I really go through a, a state change, a consciousness, state, uh, change of consciousness to go into that. It's, uh, it's always a privilege and an honor to work that deeply with people. I always learn something. Um, I remember when you, when you did the process, I said, this guy can become a really good teacher. And I remember talking to you about becoming a teacher. And I was thrilled when you became so excited about the process and you were referring and supporting your friends to come in. And then you apply to become a teacher and you've become a, a brilliant teacher. You know, I was both working with you at that time, but also noticing, hey, this the Hoffman process itself can expand if Drew were to become a, a teacher. Thank you, Rez. It, uh, you know, having been in the field as a therapist, when I took the process, 
I had this moment of like, I'm just, I mean, you reference psychiatrists doing talk therapy. That's kind of what I had been doing. And I realized that I've been not helping people access these other three aspects of themselves, a little bit of emotion, mostly intellect, not at all body, and definitely not their spirit, their essence. And so when I took the process, I had this awakening of, uh, I'm not doing people a favor. This process allows such a more deeper, a more profound experience. Well, Drew, you know, about 25 or 30% of the people who do the process come on referral from their therapists. And for the most part, the therapists themselves have done the Hoffman process because it's a place where someone can do their own work quickly. And then the therapists, of course, realize that their clients often need a more powerful experience that uh, than they can get coming in for 50 minutes a week. Uh, and so there's an opportunity for a breakthrough. And the Hoffman process works, as you alluded, it works both psych- psychologically and spiritually. It draws on the spiritual tr- traditions throughout the world, but I would say it's primarily landed in the Judeo-Christian spiritual tradition. I don't mean religious, not religious beliefs, but there's a, you know, inside of every religion, however it sort of manifests in the world, and unfortunately it manifests through beliefs usually, and beliefs are a very, shall we say, modest way of uh, of accessing spirituality. It, it doesn't really take us very far because it's intellectual. But there is a spiritual experience inside the Judeo-Christian tradition, and it actually precedes that, goes back to, I would say, the, the Greek tradition. So it's about a 2,500-year tradition. Then the, then the psychology on the, in the Western world was, you know, really began with Freud and uh, psycho, the psychotherapeutic tradition, which sort of upended, culturally speaking, up, upended the spiritual tradition and and they've been at odds with one another. In therapy, there's very little understanding of spirituality. And in spirituality, there's very little understanding of psychotherapy. And Hoffman's work has integrated those two seemingly disparate fields. And so uh, that has been very powerful. And I want to add one other thing, which is that you know compassion was differentiated or discovered simultaneously on earth about 2,500 years ago simultaneously in, in the in the east with the buddha and uh you know compassion is the sort of 99% that's the point of buddhism and in the west it was with the greeks and their form whereas with the buddha was contemplation the buddha uh, i mean in, in, with the greeks it was greek theater and the point of greek theater was to move through suffering into a transcendent experience The point of the Buddha was also that. He said, you know, all life is suffering. That was the first of his four noble truths. So it is also with Hoffman. You enter in, the beginning is to acknowledge what's wrong. What's not working for you? Where's your suffering? So we enter through that door, through that portal. And so we really have to go into the world, into the dimension of grief, suffering and grief. That's not a place that generally people hop, skip, and jump into with a sense of glee. We go resistant into grief, don't we? Well, I would say for the most part, our culture has designed it that way. 
it provides us with tremendous alternatives, things that are going to make us so happy if we only get the right car and go to the right school and marry the right person and get the right job and acquire certain symbols of success. And it's very um, interesting in Hoffman, we have frequently people of tremendous accomplishment in life. They've got everything. They've got the houses, the cars, the second homes, the everything looks from the outside looks perfect. But on the inside, on the inside, they're still suffering because all that stuff that they've achieved and purchased and acquired to buffer themselves or to provide the image of success is different than the actual experience of success. Success and joy and happiness and love is an inside job. And so Hoffman allows people to go to the inside where at your depth, beyond grief, although grief can seem like a bottomless pit, it actually, there is a bottom to it. And that bottom becomes a foundation on which we can stand. Uh, We understand the necessary heartbreak of life. And then we come alive. We move into, uh, it becomes a platform for moving into a profound uh, level of spirituality. Whereas our culture trains us to achieve and accomplish our way out of it. And unfortunately, our culture also teaches us to use numbing agents, drugs and alcohol, and all other forms of behavioral addictions to uh, numb ourselves from it. It's completely different to penetrate through it, to discover the hidden wholeness in all things, to discover your own wholeness and your belonging to life, and to no longer be held back, to be released from these uh, anchors and from this, um, you know, that we always say people have emotional baggage. Well, the Hoffman process is a place where you can put your baggage down and it stays put. We, we enter in through this, through suffering. And that's what people need to, to transcend and leave behind. It's an attachment to, well, I'm going to say it in a way that is for me the truth. It's not our own suffering that we're attached to. We're attached to the suffering of our parents. You know, Raz, you, you bring up a, a kind of a, a ironic thing or a paradox a bit of a conundrum where you reference that you go into suffering thinking it's a bottomless pit and maybe having some experience of suffering feeling like it's a bottomless pit. And yet when you actually go far enough, you feel the power of the foundation of that suffering from which to build. And it's, it feels almost like a ricochet or a uh, that foundation allows you to soar into joy and happiness and freedom. Yeah, that's exactly right, Drew. When something of tragic proportion happens, someone dies, someone you love dies, the loss of a true love somehow, we go into a, you know, it's actually, I'll call it the dark night of the soul. And the dark night of the soul is a well-worn path to the divine. As we go into it, we're in darkness and we're encountering something greater than anything we ever knew. The darkness is so huge, so great, speaking metaphorically. But then in that darkness, we see some something shining, some little bit of light. And we start moving toward it and, and grab that shiny object, whatever it might be. And it turns out that that begins to be our way through and our way out. And then 
at the core of a human being is light. And that light is experienceable. It's not a concept. You see the light. You experience the light. You find it and feel it in your body. Your body is filled with it. And then you discover that your spiritual essence, what in Hoffman we call your spiritual self, is resonating in harmony with the whole universe as it is. For me, the real point of Hoffman, let me put it this way, I'll call it spirit-guided action. When we are at one with our essence and we are connected to, therefore, to the world as it is, to the universe, there's an energy and a power and a spirituality in all things, as I said, a, a wholeness, a hidden wholeness in all things, then we experience life as flow. Instead of resistance, it's flow. And you do what works, and what you do works. So that's, you know, I, I could relax around being a great dad because I was connected to love, and I was going to work from love, and I knew that. I didn't have to know the answers. The answers would be revealed. We don't have to try so hard. It sounds like to surrender to spirit shows us in part the way. You know, Drew, we've all had that experience of flow where everything seems to just be going our way. And it's just like, oh, man, this is this is all this is fantastic. And, you know, it can last uh, in sports. Sometimes if you're playing an individual sport like tennis or golf, you can feel it. We see it happen with basketball teams, with baseball teams. All of a sudden, you know, the whole team gets into a flow, a zone, sometimes called the zone. As a result of doing Hoffman, you'll spend a lot more time in the zone, in the flow. I, I think of the of flow as a spiritual experience. And so you'll have these, to the extent that you think of it as a spiritual experience, that connection, that belonging, that knowing what to do, not being held back, uh, having courage and power and compassion, then you'll have those experiences every day, many times in each day. And uh, so that's how you know you're on track. I remember something that Joseph Campbell, you know, power of myth and the hero's journey and all that, that guy, great guy. And I remember something he once said. He said, people are, people say that we're seeking meaning. And he said, I don't think that we are seeking meaning. I think that what we're seeking is the experience of being alive. That vitality. Yes, just the experience of, wow, I'm alive, I'm connected. You feel your, you just feel so connected and beautiful and powerful and loving. Raz, I want to uh, switch a bit to the your role as leader of Hoffman International. And Hoffman is in how many countries? I think it's 14 now, 13. 13 countries. And what's it like for these um, disparate groups to come together? And how does that work, the collaboration as uh, local, regional Hoffman processes? You know, everyone, each of these places, first of all, all the leaders have themselves done the Hoffman process, and they've gone through very rigorous training. So we are assured that the quality of the process is the same everywhere. That's our first responsibility, is to ensure quality and safety everywhere. On that score, we're fantastic. 
I think it's less clear how to combine that with, with a business sense that's a different than the ordinary business sense. For example, here in the United States, we don't advertise at all. I mean, I was going to ask you about this. This is amazing. And people actually don't always believe it, but it's true, Raz. We don't do any advertising, right? Right. And we don't do promotions. Uh, we don't promote things. Or uh, what, what happens is in the United States, we have more people than we can handle. We are growing, you know, by 10 or 15% a year. We're constantly training new teachers. And there's one teacher for every eight students in a process. It just grows literally by word of mouth. So that's what our goal is, is to have the thing be so good that we even transcend the normal understandings of how business works. And we are a nonprofit organization. For example, we have a scholarship fund. People donate money to the scholarship fund. We have a 45-acre retreat site up in the Napa Valley, which was donated to us. People feel such a sense of gratitude for what happens that they voluntarily, spontaneously do things to support their friends and their family and to support the program itself. And so the creativity that emerges from people and what they do to support it exceeds anything we could figure out. So rather than having an exact strategy, we have a way of working that engenders the spontaneous creativity and contributions of people who participate. And how much does that scholarship program give a year? I know it's a it's it's surprising how much it is a couple hundred thousand dollars. Well, last year over five hundred thousand, well, close to six hundred thousand last year. That's amazing. Yeah, and that takes the form of um, you know partial support because of course there's you know there's there's room and board, so there's food, twenty two meals a week, and all that. It's a lot of upfront costs, transportation for teachers and all these things, our enrollment staff. So the the scholarship support ranges anywhere from, I would say, 1000 to two to $2,500 per person. Sometimes it's more than that for first responders and uh, other people that are on the front line or who need special kinds of support, we offer it. And you've in the past done some work with veterans programs and uh, first responders various scholarships for certain groups of people. Yep. People have talked about the food and how fantastic it is. In one of the interviews, the podcast, I speak with Heidi Kraling, who runs the restaurant in your hometown. And it's just fantastic. It was a great conversation. You've had a partnership with her for years. Heidi and Liza, my wife, who is the CEO of Hoffman, our, our kids and her kids went to school together. And so before uh, Heidi did Hoffman, Liza was good friends with her. And uh, then Heidi did Hoffman. At this point, her husband and her her adult kids have done it. And Heidi has a you know Michelin-rated restaurant here called Insalata in San Anselmo. And so they they produce the food. It's uh, it is fantastic food. Raz, earlier you talked about being a student at Berkeley in the late '60s, quite turbulent times, and you referenced the 
similarity to what's happening now, what do you see going on now that you saw then? What do you notice? You know, in the 60s, we had the whole movement toward uh, integration, Martin Luther King thing. We had the anti-Vietnam War. And we had the assassination of President Kennedy and Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy and Malcolm X. It was a violent time. We had National Guardsmen open fire on student peaceful protesters and kill them at Kent State. Similar things without death uh, happened uh, at Berkeley and, and, and Cornell and other schools. You know, Madison, Wisconsin and Ann Arbor, Michigan. So the it was led by young people in large measure, but there was a a shock, a fantastic shockwave that emanated from the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, a realization that our democracy was not quite right. Something was really wrong. And I think people are experiencing that right now. And there was a complacency before that where we're America, we're the greatest, we're, you know, everything we do, whatever we do is right. And if we do it, it's right. And suddenly this most horrific of all things occurred. And uh, I still remember the day that that happened. I was 15 years old. I can still remember the moment. I was in, in, in high school in a study hall sitting across from a, a young woman. I was a year older than I am. I was then. And I remember the announcement came over the PA system and we looked at each other's face. I'll never forget the look on her face. And everything from that moment on, everything, life was different. The context shifted. It was no longer that everything was okay. Now something fundamental is wrong. And I think we've reached the point in our society now where we realize, okay, there's some things that are really, really wrong here. We have not dealt with the scourge of racism yet. And there's 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 violence in that. You know, so so the idea of I, I liked what uh, what Obama often said about he brought forward the idea of a more perfect union. I mean, it's in the Constitution, but I think that's what we're doing. Instead of seeing America as perfect, we are creating a more perfect union, and we need all the citizens to be in, engaged in that. So instead of trying to go back to some other time, that mythical time, we're going forward. There's no going back, and so we have to work together, and the key is always going to be love. Love is the answer, uh, and we have to learn to be guided by love, and we have to learn how to love each other. And we have to learn how to be better parents. I think of this young man who came to Kenosha, Wisconsin, with an AR-15 type of automatic assault weapon. He was 17 years old. So his mother bought him that weapon, and his mother drove him to the event from Illinois. I won't have to go on and elaborate too much more to say that that's one of the reasons Hoffman is dealing with what happens in our childhood with our parents. Because that young man certainly, he was raised to believe in violence. Somehow, she, his mother believed in it and supported him in it. The process plays a key role here in helping people heal and helping people learn how to love. It's, it's part of what you're saying. I am saying that. And I'm saying that the way we raise our children determines the quality of people that they are. Working on the family and on those family of origin issues is not incidental to profound change. And every person who comes out of Hoffman, as I mentioned earlier, is 
lives a more spirit-guided life spontaneously. So we don't have any prescription for what to believe in political parties or religions or anything like that. But people do go back to wherever they came from, able to bring more love and live with more love. And that means that more love goes back to families, to communities, to institutions. And the addition of love changes everything. So we just have a trust that out of doing Hoffman, there's more love going into the world. Rez, I want to ask you before we go about the society and the changing um, understanding of compassion. When you when you were starting to do this work and Bob brought it into the world, it was pretty radical stuff. And yet now, some of those things that were radical then are quite mainstream now. Kristen Neff researches self-compassion. We reference much of the work outside of Hoffman in support of our work and in research around uh, the research-based nature of our work. But what have you noticed around society changing and becoming more accepting of some of these things that we've talked about? And how has that integrate with what we do during people's processes at Hoffman. Drew, you, you use the word compassion. And uh, I want to say that compassion is a distinct thing. It's an adult emotion. It's different from sympathy and empathy. It's the compassion is, passion literally means suffering. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, you know, we hear about the passion of Christ. This is about, you know, when he was tortured and crucified. So it's it's suffering. And com, the word C-O-M means with. So it's the ability, the adult ability to be with suffering, our own and others, without having to push it away, like with anger, without trying to distract ourselves through ex- crazy experiences and uh, acquisitions, without becoming depressed, So being able to experience sadness, a willingness to experience this, and to connect with other people in that experience without withdrawing. And so it is really our ability to be present to suffering. And as we are present to this, and we open the vulnerability within ourselves, our vulnerability becomes an abiding companion and a necessary foundation to life itself. And vulnerability means that we're open to suffering and that we have a disposition toward compassion. Uh, As I said earlier, the Buddhists uh, have have extolled compassion. Uh, I think we're more in the ancient Greek tradition because they didn't go to the Greek theater for entertainment. They went there for powerful spiritual experiences. There was not entertainment. That was not their idea at all. And Hoffman is like Greek theater. There's something about being together with other people that gives us access to this compassion if it's directed in the right way and gives us the disposition and the capacity and the know-how for catharsis and connection with the divine within and beyond. 
and that changes everything. So I think what's emerging in our world today is compassion, more and more compassion. We're not denying the suffering of people of color in our culture. We're not denying the inequality, economic inequalities in our culture that produce more and more suffering. And as we, and we're not denying that people need access to medical care, that that's like a human right. So as we're moving forward, I think we're becoming more compassionate and willing to, um, to be connected to each other, to recognize that we are connected to each other and that there is this paradox. The paradox of life is we are individuals and we believe in and extol the power and the virtue of the individual. It's sacred. Simultaneously, we are a, a group. We belong to each other. We're social beings. So we are both social and individual. And it's like, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, chickens and eggs go together. And so human beings, we have to embrace the dual nature, the paradoxical nature of human beings, of being individual and social, and embrace that paradox instead of trying to land on one side or the other. And so we are evolving and uh, evolving in our ability to produce a society that that is um, both free and just. People have freedom, individual freedom, and we have justice. Stepping into the mystery of life, stepping into the paradox. I love that um, sense of mystery. It fits so much my own experience and such a challenging thing to hold when we want to know the answer. Mystery sort of says, uh, nice try. Uh, you can only know part of this, and it's an adventure that will be forever unfolding. Um, but I have a I have a question for you, Raz. So it's it, it, you've reflected on the power of the process, the history of the institute, your time with Bob, um, and your own personal Hoffman process learnings as a parent and in your marriage. What's it been like to have this conversation reflecting on all these things? Well, it's beautiful because I end up owning more of my own life and my own experience. So I wanted to give you a, a simple ex example that is powerful for me of what, what change happened in my life. So when I, when I was a little boy, my dad, my dad is a Italian uh, first-generation American. My grandparents were immigrants. My dad raised me on the idea that boys don't cry, men don't cry. And so he he could look in my eye and he could say, don't cry. And so I learned not to cry. And he could just stop me from crying from by looking at me. And so I grew up that way. And then uh, that was in Wisconsin. I moved out to California in 1966. And uh, in the course of all my work out here, I did learn how to cry. And then when I did the Hoffman process, however, I still realized I had this input, this uh, ingrained idea to be strong, to never be vulnerable, to never show any weakness or pain. And so I, I dealt with that in the Hoffman process. And then about six months after I came out of the process, uh, we were one Sunday late afternoon in a rush to go visit someone in our our, our kids were 
were both under, well, our son was four, I guess our daughter was have been about six. And I quickly picked up our little boy and I strapped him into the back seat and uh, his car seat and all that. And he started complaining pretty loudly in the car about he didn't want to, uh, he didn't want to go out. No one had told him we were going out to someone else's home. And, and that wasn't fair because he wanted to spend the time with all just as a family day at home. And so I was at first, I started ignoring him. And as I backed up the driveway, he, he upped the volume and uh, I had, I, I had this impulse to turn around and look him in the eye and say, stop crying. And his volume increased and I had this impulse. And, and then my wife was sitting right next to me. So in order to turn around toward him, I'd have had to sort of raise my voice in her ear. And I knew that was not going to work. And then I got this idea, well, I'll just let him be and watch her deal with it. And she didn't do anything about it. And by the time I'd gone about two blocks, his volume had gone up. And I said to myself, well, I'm the adult here. He's interfering with my driving. I'm, uh, I have to stop him. And so we're coming to uh, a stop sign. And I decided I'm going to turn around and tell him to stop crying, stop yelling. And just as I had made the decision to do that, and I started to turn my head, all of a sudden, clear as everything, I heard my father's voice in my ear. And he said, stop crying, stop crying. He was telling me that. And so I was coming to a stop sign, and my hands were starting to tremble because this was an experience of, wow, I, that had come to me. I was going to transmit it immediately to him. And so instead, I just turned to him and I said, you're right. You're right. We didn't ask you. I'm so sorry. And I apologized to him and said, we're in the car already. Should we keep going or do you want to go back home? We can go home. We don't have to go. And he, he said, no, no, it's okay. And in that moment, um, everything changed. Well, then uh, two years later, my mother had a big change for him. His, his legacy is different. He's now very sensitive and uh, strong, powerful guy, but also vulnerable. And, uh, so then two years later, my mother had a massive heart attack and she was in Wisconsin. She was in the hospital and she lingered on. And I, I would go back there for a couple or three days every week until she passed away. Well, this last time I was there, uh, we came out and the next day I was going to fly back to California. We're sitting in my dad's car and in the parking lot of the, ho of the hospital. And I was crying and uh, my dad said, I, I guess you know that you're never going to see your mother alive again. And I said, yes. And, uh, and I kept crying and I was sobbing a bit. And, you know, I was like 43 years old. And then after a couple of minutes, I stopped. And there was a long pause. We're sitting and the sun is starting to set in this parking lot. And my dad said to me, I don't know how to cry. Can you teach me how to cry? And I did. And my mother passed away a few days later. And he would call me and he'd say, we talk every day. And he would say, well, I cried twice yesterday or I cried this morning. He was so proud of that, uh, that he could cry. And it enabled him to move through his grief. He, it was devastating to him. But, she, you know, she was the love of his life. They'd been married 45 years. But then... He healed, and then he lived to be 90, 95, 
And the, the last 20 years of his life, he was just a happy, happy person, fulfilled. And all the hardness and uh, the rigidness went out of him. And uh, he became emotionally attuned and emotionally vulnerable. And that was an amazing story for me about how it's just, it's a real Hoffman story. I wanted to share it. As you tell that story and think back, what do you notice about your feelings as you reflect on it? I notice that there's peace throughout my body, that there's, I can feel the energy flowing in my body. There's no resistance, there's no, there's no cover or tension around my heart space or in my throat, anywhere where I might normally hold tension. It's just free and, and open and flowing and loving. Yeah, I'm deeply grateful to Bob Hoffman because what I had been taught was to deal with grief by pushing it away, by being angry. That was what it meant to be a man. And I no longer have that. So I'm a much more peaceful, loving, free person. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful. I'm, I'm with you. This conversation has uh, been uh, wonderful for me to uh, join you in this adventure you've taken of transformation, both embodying it yourself and then helping thousands and millions of people around the world uh, experience it as well. So thank you for that. Thank you for this conversation. Drew, you're amazing. Thank you. I love you. I love you, Russ. to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.